right. How you guys doing? Man, are you guys excited to start a new series? Wow. I am too. It seems like forever that we've been in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare went nine weeks, and that felt like a long time. Um, but we're going to be in Revelation for a little bit longer than that. So I hope you guys are excited about that. Uh, special shout out and welcome to our visitors. If it's your first time or you've been here just a couple times and still kind of getting the hang of what we do, um, we teach or I teach uh, an expository style, which means for the most part, I let the scripture speak for itself. And I help to interpret it and help it make sense. Okay, so we use a lot of scripture, a lot more than maybe a lot of churches do these days. Um, but I think it's important to know what the Bible truly says. And then again, my job is to make it clear. And when we're talking about a series like the revelation of Jesus Christ, there is so much that needs to be made clear in a, in a book like this, right? So that's what we're doing. Now we spent, again, spent nine weeks in spiritual warfare. And one of the things that I keep saying over and over again is that the devil sometimes wins those little battles, those little battles that we fight all the time. The devil is still putting up a fight, but that we ultimately win the war through Jesus Christ, right? I keep saying that over and over again, which is fantastic, but how do we know that? How do we know that? We know that because of a little book that we're about to study that was a prophetic vision, a revelation of the things to come. That was given to the Apostle John. Through this book, we see the victory in Jesus, and that's what makes it exciting to me to go in and study. It's probably, not even probably, I would, I would wager that this is the least taught book in the Bible. Probably in general, it's the one that gets the least teaching. Every now and then there's little scriptures that get pulled out, but as far as the entirety of the book, it's not taught very often. Did you know, just a little bit of trivia, the book of Revelation is the only book that in the very first verse gives us a promise. Does anybody know what the promise is in the very first book, first verse of the book of Revelation? Anybody know the promise? Not you, Weston. You're way too spiritual. You know that. <laughs> Emily? That's it. A blessing. If you didn't hear it, Revelation is the only book in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, that says this will be a blessing to those who speak it and those who hear it. Isn't that awesome? I'm excited to get to speak it, and I hope you're excited now to get to hear it, if nothing else but just for that. It's a blessing. But there's so much interpretation that needs to happen. So much understanding. Again, and I talk about misunderstandings. It's so important to me to demystify what the Word of God says. It's so important to me. So many people spend their entire lives, their entire lives as a Christian, much less somebody from the outside who's just wondering if this is something that is for them, full of mystery. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even need to understand it. They'll tell me what I need to know. How many of you have either thought that or heard that said to somebody? Okay? I don't want it to be like that. The Word of God speaks for itself, but it can be difficult sometimes, especially when there's imagery and things like that. And I think probably you've heard of the term, you just made it weird. 
Okay? That was probably first spoken to the Apostle John when he turned in this letter to whoever. Okay, This is all good, but you just made it weird. I wasn't there, so that's not, thus saith the Lord. It may not have happened like that. But when you think of the book of Revelation, when you think of the book of Revelation, what do you think of? What immediately comes to mind? Left behind. End times. What else? The rapture. Confusion. Yeah. All these things come to mind when we think of the book of Revelation. Here's a couple. I just pulled out a couple representative scriptures that kind of, I I feel like, kind of encompass what most people's at least initial thought is. The first one is Revelation 21.8. We've got it on the screen. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Awesome. (laughs) Who's excited now? Revelation 6, 1 through 8. This is a little bit longer, but bear with me. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Okay. Verse 7, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Who's excited now? Maybe this is an image that might give you a representation of what was going on there. That's a painting from, I think, the 15th century. Pretty exciting looking, right? It's pretty cool. It's called Death on a Pale Horse. It's an amazing painting, But it sounds super fun, right? Who's really excited to really dig into this and find out about that pestilence and all that? Revelation, church, is not a book about suffering. It's not a book about being scared and being punished. That's not what Revelation is about, although that's what people tend to think about it. It's a book that celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what it celebrates, and it foretells of that. So here's some scriptures that really, really encompass what this is about. This is Revelation 19, 6-7. 
Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's also a book about the final victory of Jesus Christ over the forces of evil. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now who's excited to dig into this book? I'm excited. We need to understand the background and the purpose, though, of this book in order to fully understand it. We're going to spend quite some time in the book of Revelation, and it's really, really important that we understand why it was written and who wrote it, and it's really its background. Okay, so we're actually going to dig in just a little bit do a little bit of exegetical study on this book to really understand the fullness as we go in. Now, we won't repeat this time and time again. If you miss this or you have anybody who comes in, friends who've missed this, have them go back and listen to this because really we'll lay the groundwork for an understanding of where we go. So, first of all, the full name of the book is not Revelation. It's not the book of Revelation. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's called, and that's what we should call it, but shorthand, we just go, we're going into Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? And that's important. That word revelation, okay, it's a Greek word, and if you're new here, I teach Greek every now and then. Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, apocalypsis, which means an uncovering, an unveiling, or a revealing, that's what it means, and it's where we get the name of the genre that this book is written in called apocalyptic. Okay, when you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think of? Yeah. Nothing good, usually, right? Apocalypse. We're all going to the apocalypse. Grab your stuff. Let's go. It's rarely ever seen as a good thing. It's always in regards to a catastrophe or something terrible, right? That's what we think of, but the study of apocalyptic literature. It's called, it's called, it's got another name. Sometimes people call it eschatology. You can sound really smart and throw that out to your friends. But the study of eschatology literally just means the study of end, of the end of things, okay? Which really in the context of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ is not entirely accurate because it's not the end of things. Not if you're a Christian, it's not. So we need to be aware of that. But that's where it comes from. So the genre, again, is apocalyptic. Now, let's talk about what a genre is. 
Does anybody know the understanding of the word genre or like a biblical genre? What's a genre? Hmm? Mode of writing, right. Mode of writing. That's technically exactly correct. Different writing styles. So let's, let's put it in just like normal terms that we talk about every day. It, genre of literature, okay, which the, the Bible is, is literature. We need to treat it like that, and we need to apply the rules of studying literature to studying the Bible. Okay, we have the Holy Spirit to help us interpret, but we can interpret that within the framework of rules that we use for other literature. So when we're talking about genre, fiction, nonfiction, okay, mystery, educational, different types of writing like that, okay, there's history, there's, there's textbooks, things like that, and you wouldn't read them all the same way, would you? If you're reading a work of fiction or, say, a thriller, and you're trying to read that the same way that you would read an encyclopedia, you're going to have a hard time with it, right? So it's important to know the genre of what you're reading so that you know the type of literary rules to apply to it that help us with our understanding. The form that it takes is a clue to its meaning. That's why it's important for us to know, okay? The word of God was purposefully and deliberately transmitted by the Holy Spirit to men in a certain way. And that way is not the same all the time. There are several different ways, and it was done specifically to make it easy to learn, to absorb, and to transmit. So again, you wouldn't read a fictional thriller the same way you read an encyclopedia. You don't read Genesis the same way that you would read Psalms or the same way that you would read Revelation. Okay, they're different, and we need to look at them. So there's various genres. I'm not going to go into them all, but there's narrative, okay, which is storytelling. There's laws and legal writing, okay? You know, a bunch of books of laws, right? The epistles, which are letters, Okay, the epistles are letters that were written to specific churches for specific things, right? So those are epistles. There's prophecy, there's wisdom, and there's poetic. Okay, these are all different genres that you're going to find right next to one another in the Word of God. And sometimes it'll even, in, within one book, it will switch back and forth. And we need to be aware of that. Excuse me. And then the last one that we're going to talk about here and for the rest of this time is apocalyptic. Okay, apocalyptic literature is a genre that we're going to talk about, and you have to read it within certain rules and interpret it within certain rules. Okay, it's really rich in symbolism and imagery. Lots of symbolism, lots of imagery. There's going to be a lot of that. It is ultimately, it's the prophetic promise of victory. That's what it is. But it tells the culmination of God's plan to redeem humanity. That's the way that we read apocalyptic literature. Now, big question. Should we look at the imagery that's in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ? Should we take it literally? Or is it figurative? How should we take it? When we see some of these amazing symbols and the, and the horses and all these different things, how should we take that? Should we look at it literally? Is it symbolic? How should we look at it? This is what we need to figure out, right? 
because that's going to really change our interpretation of how we look at the word. So which is it? Scholars, I'll tell you, scholars argue this all the time. Okay, do a Google search on it. Is the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, is it literal or is it symbolic? Do that, and their pages will go on forever. Well-known, well-respected scholars able to document their position one way or another, but they're 180 degrees opposed in how they think about it. So I am not going to sit here and tell you this is how you should see it. But I'm going to tell you my reasoning for the way that I see it the way I see it. Okay? I'm going to go right to Revelation 1.1. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 1. It reads like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Okay, you read that in context, and it sets up how this is being transmitted. But here's what I want you to see. That word communicated it, okay? He sent and communicated it. We break that into two words, okay? And in the Greek that this was written in, it's really just one word. It's really just one word, and that word is, is uh, semaino. Another Greek lesson for you, semaino. But the definition is to indicate by sign gesture, or symbol. And the reason that this is important, if we look all the way back, what's, okay, if we talk about Revelation as being apocalyptic literature, what's the other well-known chapter, well-known book in the Bible that is also apocalyptic? Anybody know? It's Daniel. It's Daniel. Now, Daniel does tend to cross genres, but it's also apocalyptic. In fact, Daniel is considered the Hebrew because it's Old Testament. It's what the Hebrews had as their apocalyptic end-time literature. The thing is, they didn't understand that it was pointing towards Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, we have the Apostle John giving us the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is our apocalyptic literature that puts a point on it, points directly to Jesus. Okay, when Daniel wrote this, he couldn't have known. But here's what's important to know. Back again, back in in the book of Daniel, Daniel, there's a story in there where Daniel is interpreting a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. Okay, and this dream is just full of all kinds of weird symbology. And Daniel interprets that dream for him. And the very same word that's used that semaino, which is, that's a Greek word. So it would have been Hebrew back in Daniel's time, but it's the same word, just different translation, talks about imagery being interpreted. Okay, so we see that same use of imagery. So that's what we need to look at. Daniel is a foreshadowing of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It uses the same terminology, talking about imagery being interpreted. So, That brings us to my answer. Everybody's waiting for my answer. Is it symbolic or is it literal, right? It's both. Does that help you? It's both. And so here's what I'm going to do. As I go through this series, as all of our different teachers, as we teach our way through this series, we're going to do our best to tell you as we go along, this is literal, this is symbolic, this is how to see this. We're going to help you see that in that way. But really, you need to interpret the revelation of Jesus Christ as both 
symbolic and literal because it's both at different times. So let's go a little bit further then. We've talked about that. Let's go back even now and who wrote the book. Okay, it was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was a cousin of Jesus. Okay, Scripture says, and I'll read it, John 13, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's John that he's talking about. And John is the, John's mother is Salome, and Salome is Mary's sister. Okay, not that that's super important from a theological standpoint, but that puts John as Jesus' cousin. Okay, John is Jesus' cousin. He's also, at this time that he writes this, he's the last surviving apostle. Okay, all the other apostles have been martyred or passed away. They're gone. He is the last living apostle. And it's about the year 95. And what happens here is John is arrested because he's actually in Ephesus. He's preaching the word of Christ in Ephesus. And he's being told time and time again, stop it. Quit doing that. It's against the law what you're doing. Stop doing it. You're irritating. Quit doing it. And in true apostle fashion, he refuses to stop doing it. Okay, his reward for that is that he's arrested. He's arrested. And luckily for him and for us, he's not just martyred on the spot, which commonly happened. He's actually exiled to an island, a little island called Patmos. Not much on this island. It's basically just a rock for him to live on. But this is where he is when he receives this revelation. Okay, so we picture, picture John. He's an old man by this time. And he's the last one hanging on. And he's writing this book. So it was written to, anybody know who it was written to? It was written to actually seven churches. And we know that because Scripture says that, Revelation 1.4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you, and this is, this is Asia Minor, by the way, not Asia as we see it today. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Okay, this is what he's talking about. Those seven spirits are seven churches, and he's writing to these specific churches. And this is a matter of where it's literal. He's writing to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, we'll talk more about those later because he specifically addresses parts of this book to them. But that's who he's writing to. And we've actually got a map. Kind of shows you. Okay, this, this Aegean area here. Pergamos, there's all the different churches. You see Ephesus and Philadelphia and all those. The island of Patmos, tiny little dot clear down in there. This is where he is. You see Jerusalem down on the right. I know a lot of people like to see that imagery of what's going on. These are the churches he's writing to. The reason he's writing to them, these are the churches that he did his ministry in. When he's traveling around, these are the churches. He went there, helped them set up their church. He got them going. He pastored there for a while. He encouraged them. He spent a lot of time building relationships in these churches. And so this letter... This book, as we call it, is specifically addressed to those churches because of some specific things that they are about to go through. And he can't go visit them directly because he's in prison. 
So he's writing them this letter. So the need for this book, the reason that it was written in the first place, is actually spelled out in Scripture if we look at what was going on at the time, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Okay, stop right there. If you get a letter that starts with that, does it get your attention right away? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. You know some stuff's about to go down if your letter reads like that. Some serious, serious persecution is about to rain down on these churches. And this is why he's writing this letter. He's in prison. He knows these things are about to happen, but he can't go there and encourage them in person. So he's writing this book to them, okay, addressing it to them to encourage them. Now, what's about to rain down on them? Some persecution under a Roman emperor named Domitian, okay? Domitian was a tyrant among tyrants, okay? Roman emperors at the time were not really known for being warm and fuzzy, right? We can go on and on about all the different emperors and the fantastic things that they did for their people, okay? None of them did fantastic things for their people. But Domitian was especially evil. He was so bad that his own court, his own court of closest friends and advisors assassinated him. When they assassinated him, rather than to try and hide it, they went to the Roman Senate and said, we took care of it for you. They proudly proclaimed that they're the ones that did it. And the Senate said, okay, we are going to strike the memory of Domitian from the records. They literally said, we are going to erase the fact that he ever was. Now, we don't know. We, we do know that that didn't really happen, and literally, because we know he existed. But they did a lot to just distance themselves from him because he was that bad. Now, I could go on and on and on about the different persecution that he rained down on the Christians, but that's not really important. What is important that these churches, they needed encouragement They needed encouragement to persevere in times of some serious trial and tribulation that was coming their way. They were going to experience things that there was no way for them to know. But God used John to deliver a sneak peek to them, if you will, of what the ultimate victory in Jesus Christ looks like. If you persevere, this is in store for you. It's much the same message that we have today. So if we look at what the main theme of the book is, okay, if we're an overarching theme of the entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's meant to be a book of hope. It's a book of hope, not of damnation and punishment and scary end times things. It's meant to be a book of hope because God is, always has been, and always will be sovereign aware of and in control of everything that happens on this earth. Always. Nothing takes him by surprise. There was a thing going around Facebook this last week. I loved it. It said, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Think about that for a second. He's not surprised by anything. 
He's always been in control, and he always will be. And our promise is that if our faith is in him, then his promise is for good and for not harm to us. He promises to be our God, and we have that. We can take it. When it looks like evil is winning, when it looks like persecution is ramping up and it's worse than it's ever been, we can look at things like this, and we can know that God is sovereign, always has been, always will be. So let's go back to that last scripture again, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. What's the crown of life? And why is that our prize for persevering? What is the crown of life? Is, is the crown of life salvation? It's commonly seen as salvation. But this is John writing this. Salvation's not his to give. It's being transmitted by an angel. It's not the angel's to give. So we know it's not a salvation issue. The crown of life That's very good. That's very close. The crown of life is really, it's given to those who we see in Scripture that they persevere in faith through trials, through temptation, through tribulation, through all those things that come their way. They persevere and receive the crown of life. So let's look at that just a little bit more. I'll just read these next two to you. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-25 say, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it then to receive a perishable wreath. That's a crown. But we an imperishable one. Therefore, the crown of life that they're talking about here is a reward for a life well lived. It's an honor that Jesus bestows on those who endure those trials and tribulations and those who live a life worthy of what Christ did for us. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and uh, start heading up. Paul actually echoes this idea of perseverance in Galatians. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This is what we need to focus on when we read and we study the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, then, I'm going to read this because I don't want to get this wrong. Revelation, then, is a book of hope and promise for those who know Christ and live his word. Persevering in times of trial, not through our strength or skill, but through the supernatural power of the living Christ. And then living a life worthy of that sacrifice. Living a life worthy of being called a son or daughter of God. 
live a life worthy of your calling. Now who's excited to join us as we study our way through this book? It's a book of hope, amen? All right, guys. We're gonna go into a time of communion. I can't think of a better time or a better way to celebrate what Jesus, we know what he's gonna do. He's already won this battle. We need to persevere. That's our part in this. But persevering in this is so much more than just hanging on. We don't just sit back and just take all the slings and arrows and and say, I made it through, I persevered. We are to persevere with the joy and the love of the Lord and take ground. We are to advance, not just to put in our time until we make it to heaven. We want to receive the crown of life, then persevering is so much more. This isn't like a Rocky movie. How many times can you get hit and get back up? We are supposed to take ground, move forward, tell people about Jesus Christ, show people the love of Christ, be his ambassadors in this world, especially when things don't come your way. That's what we celebrate through communion. A risen Lord who gave himself on the cross for you to give you the Holy Spirit, to give you eternal life, to give you everything that you need to run the race with perseverance. So as we go into communion, the way that we do it here, if you're new here, we have um, at the crosses, we have two stations, one on each side. There we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, and you can just take whichever you prefer, dip it in the juice and take it, serve yourself that way or serve your family. Or up front here, we have wine and bread and juice. If you would like to be served, Gabe and I will serve you up here. But let's take a moment as the worship team plays on, let's just sit and respond prayerfully to what the Lord has for you out of a message like this. Because it'd be tempting to just say, oh, I just learned a lot of stuff. But I think the Lord's got something for you. And so I'm gonna pray to close and then you can feel free to move around and take communion whenever you're ready. Let's live a life worthy of our calling. Amen, church? Father God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are and have always been a sovereign God. Nothing is a surprise to you, and therefore, our reaction to a message like this, our reaction to trials and temptations and tribulations are not a surprise to you. But Lord, we thank you that you gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ, so that we could persevere, so that we have an opportunity to live a life worthy of what he did for us. Father, we want to pursue you, and we want to live a life worthy of being called your son and daughter. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would reveal to us individually what you need us to know. Let everything else fall to the wayside except what you want us to know. But then make that solid in our hearts. Because God, there's nothing that matters except your heart for us. And it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.
You'll leave. 